All right, so this is the second to last week that we are in Kings. And what we're going to do for the next two weeks is look at the two captivities or the two. Uh, it's, it's bleak, it's sad, but it's part of the plan uh, that moves us toward uh, the coming of Jesus. Um, so tonight we're going to look at the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of Assyria. Next week we will look at the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah the hands of Babylon. And uh, this leaves us, this will leave us in exile. The northern kingdom never comes back from exile. Um, And the southern kingdom comes back in a quite diminished and and a different configuration than than the former kingdom, uh, even in the divided kingdom. So, uh, just to catch us up, you remember in the outline of Kings, there are really three sections. And we've just, we've just come out of the second section, which is um, the story of the prophets, particularly Elijah and Elisha. Um, hang on, let me get these so they're not blowing around. Um, okay, so... I want to catch us up in the story that begins after, once the, the story of the kings begins to, to come back into, uh, into view. So uh, if you remember, the way that the story is told, when it's following the lineage of the kings, is uh, it will say, so-and-so ruled in Judah, or so-and-so ruled in Israel. A lot of times it will tell you at what point during the reign of the king of Israel or Judah, this particular king started. So in the 19th year of King Ahab, so-and-so began to reign. And uh, the story shifts back and forth uh, on that timeline, okay? So there's some overlap, but the story uh, makes it clear. It includes those time markers in there. So um, the story shifts from Elisha to uh, Jehu, the king Jehu, and um, I want to catch the story. I want to kind of catch the story up from Jehu onward. So go to Second Kings. I think it's chapter twelve or so. Yeah, I knew that was going to happen. says Anthony Flannery left. Jehu, where's Jehu? About chapter 9. Yeah, chapter 9. So Elisha's ministry uh, shifts out of the center of focus. And this guy Jehu, whom Elisha anoints to be king, begins to take over. Uh, Jehu is first mentioned. Do you remember where Jehu is first mentioned? When God is dealing with Elijah, when Elijah has his crisis of faith or crisis of calling or whatever you want to call it, and he tells Elijah, basically, I have a plan for Ahab. Okay, You remember Ahab failed to repent at the great show of God answering by fire against the prophets of Baal. Ahab is pretty much unfazed. 
Elijah doesn't like that. He thinks he's the only one left. And God says, no, actually, why don't you just get up and go and continue your ministry, and we're going to be going for a long time after you're gone. So go and anoint Jehu. Go and tap Elisha. And uh, he also mentions a priest, I believe. And he says, these guys are the next guys in line. You go pour yourself into them, and you go see what's going on with them. So Jehu, the, the, the role Jehu plays is as God's agent of cleansing and purging on the house of Ahab, okay? Uh, Ahab's house was terrible, right? He, his reign was terrible. Um, there was lots of sin, lots of Baal worship in particular. And God's mighty work at the hands of Elijah and the slaughtering of the prophets of Baal was just the beginning. Jehu comes in, and if you, re- you know because you read the story, Jehu just wreaks havoc on the house of Ahab, all right? And he's killing everyone. I mean, he just comes in, he kills everyone. He kills prophets of Baal, right? And in some ways, you're, you might say, is, is this going to be Israel's finally their good king? But he's not. He's still considered a bad king. He was used by God. He was anointed by God, but he was still a bad king. So he goes and he cleans house, and he kills, um, he kills Ahab, Jezebel, also the king of Judah at that point. And uh, he tricks the prophets of Baal. He says, hey, guys, let's have, a, let's have a Baal party. And they all show up, and then he kills them all. And uh, so Jehu is, is a bad dude. Um, and then what's going on in Judah at that same time is after Jehu assassinates um, Ahaziah, who was the king of Judah at that point, after he assassinates him... Um, Oh, we got some feedback here. Interesting. Um, after he assassinates him, Athaliah starts to reign. This this queen sits on the throne for, for a brief amount of time, for about six years. And um, what happens during this time is very interesting. Jehoiada, the priest, and Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, so the sister of the guy who's assassinated by Jehu, hides one of his children, who's an infant. And this is just like the story of Moses, right? Moses' mother and Miriam hide Moses. And uh, this priest Jehoiada takes this child away and trains him in the word and raises him. And he begins to reign when he's uh, actually seven years old. So they, they thought that the, the lineage was broken when Jehu comes in and cleans house, but the lineage remains intact because of this, uh, this sister, Jehoshaphat, and uh, Jehoiada the priest. So that's a really neat story. Um, the faithful priest. And uh, then we're off and running. And... What was that? Somebody win a prize? Um, then we're off and running. We've got the reigns of, then the J names just to begin to make your eyes glaze over, right? Joash, Jehoash, Jeho, Jeho, Joram, Jehoram. And then they're actually interchangeable. They're like also pronounced Joram and Jehoram. Um, so lots of confusing names. It reminds me some of, uh, I don't know, some of the Tolkien stuff where all the names just sound the same, like all the, all the Hobbit names and everything. Um, 
Elisha dies in chapter 13, and there's a really interesting story uh, around his death. They bury him in a grave, and his bones are there, and there's this band of marauders that are coming in, and one of them gets killed, and they throw him in the grave of Elisha, and when he touches Elisha's bones, he comes back to life. And uh, some people make a big deal out of that because you remember Elisha had asked for a double portion, and he went to his grave, If you, depending on how you count the miracles, and there's different ways you can count them. But he went to his grave, apparently one shy of twice as many miracles as Elijah. And so some people think that that last, like, post-mortem uh, miracle put him right at double, uh, double portion. But I'm not sure if that's uh, the intent or even the meaning of that phrase, the double portion. Um, but it's close. I mean, it's, it's you know, depending on how you count it, it, it can work out. So if you're in, inclined to those sort of neat aha things in Scripture, I, I think you're, you're on solid ground. Sadly, in chapter 14, there actually, uh, a civil war actually breaks out between the two kingdoms. Okay, at this point, they haven't uh, really been that directly at war with each other. Um, but this guy, uh, who is it at this point? Joash, who's also named Jehoash, but the descendant of Jehu, I'll just call him Joash, the descendant of Jehu, gets a big head and he declares war against Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah. All right. um, So there is civil war. And then Jeroboam, the second Jeroboam, not the original Jeroboam, but Jeroboam II begins to reign. And what I want to point about, out about this is that during Jeroboam II's reign, other prophets uh, begin to emerge, and the, the end of Israel begins to come into view, all right? Uh, Jonah is mentioned in chapter 14, the prophet Jonah, in 14 verse uh, 25. Um, Jeroboam II had actually a, a pretty long reign, 41 years. And he had an expansive reign. He kind of reestablished some territory, reinforced. And so it seems to be going pretty well for Israel, but it's not. Not in the eyes of God. All right. So Jonah begins to prophesy at this point. And also uh, the prophets, and I'm going to read a a bit in the prophets, uh, Hosea and Amos. They have their own books. The prophets Hosea and Amos are prophesying to... Israel, the northern kingdom, at this point in the, in the reign of Jeroboam and after. Then Azariah begins to reign in Judah, chapter 15. Um, another name for Azariah, the name that he's given a couple chapters later, but also in the book of Chronicles when they retell the story, is Uzziah. Okay, and you probably remember the name Uzziah from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, and it's one of the great prophetic visions of the Old Testament. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It's Isaiah chapter 6 when he gets his calling. And so Isaiah begins to prophesy to this point, but Isaiah prophesies more toward Judah, the southern kingdom. Okay, So what I want to point out is around this time of Jeroboam 2, God's sending the final prophetic words to the northern kingdom. And he's beginning to send intensifying prophetic words to the southern kingdom, Isaiah uh, in, in particular. 
Um, after Jeroboam 2, things spiral out of control pretty quickly. All right, and we have some some brief reigns. Uh, Zechariah is six months. Shalom is one month. Okay, so things begin to crumble. The the stability that was there during Jeroboam 2 begins to crumble. Uh, Menahem reigned for 10 years. And then uh, Pekahiah reigned for two years. And Pekah reigned for 20 years. And every one of them did what was evil inside of, in the sight of the Lord. There's increasing uh, reliance upon Assyria, deals being made with Assyria. And then we get uh, in chapter 16 or 15, verse 29. In the days of, king, of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abel-Beth-Maakah, Janoah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. So the, the Assyrian captivity really begins during the reign of uh, Pekah. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and struck him down. So then Hoshea uh, begins to reign. I'm going to skip over the two kings, uh, Jotham and Ahaz in Judah. Uh, I want to focus just on the northern kingdom from here on out. Uh, chapter 17. And this is where I want to spend uh, a little bit of time. So Hoshea, the twelfth year of King Ahaz of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned for nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. A vassal was like a subordinate person in covenant terms. Okay, He paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea. For he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So Hoshea is the king that's king over Israel when the final captivity happens. Okay, Hoshea was Joshua's name before Moses changed it. Remember that? Joshua was the one who brought them into the land, who captured the land, who drove out the inhabitants of the land. And it's Hosea, we've ended up all the way back, even pre-Joshua, we've ended up all the way back, and now they're being taken out of the land, okay? And the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of the king of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala, on the Habor, the river of Gozan, in the city of the Medes. And this occurred, now from, from verse 7 to 23, is a very significant portion of scripture. And um, I, I want to I just walk through it here uh, tonight, because this is, a, this is a statement of why the northern kingdom went into captivity. This occurred because people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God 
who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Just stop right there. This happened because why? These people sinned against God's laws. Yes, but even more importantly, they sinned against the very God who brought them out of Egypt and sent and gave them this land. Okay? This is significant. They sinned against the personal God, the one God. This is the one who had all those years ago brought them out of Egypt. And they feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves. That's a key phrase there, for themselves. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. So their hearts going after other gods. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. The Lord sent prophets. The Lord warned them over and over. And at this point, how many times had he warned them? So many times. But they would not listen. Or were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And that's an important thing, right? They didn't just kind of all of a sudden get ambushed by idolatry. They went after the idols. They wanted to do it. They feared other gods. They revered other gods. And you see all this, it's, I mean, this is a pretty convincing argument. If this were like a court situation, I mean, the evidence would be over, overwhelming. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. We have to see here that they did not kind of struggle, <laughs> right? We think of sin as like, man, I just really struggle with this thing sometimes. It, you know, it just kind of trips me up, makes me stumble. They did not stumble into this, okay? This, they, they chose this. You look at all the active, very strong verbs here. They abandoned God. They despised the covenant. And they made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings 
and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. These are all the things. This was the iniquity of the Amorites that had become complete. And it's why God sent them in to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Because they were worshiping Baal. They were sacrificing their children. They despised God. And they've become exactly like the people who were polluting the land that God had promised to Abraham. If you're going to come in and pollute the land I've promised to Abraham, I'm going to kick you right back out. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Unfortunately, we also know that that story is headed in a bad direction as well. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And this is the very same image that we get of the first two people of God, Adam and Eve, being exiled from the Garden of Eden. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. And they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And then, um, so Assyria brings them out. And then it says, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So he repopulates the land with Assyrians, various different ethnicities. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So he displaces Israelites and brings in Gentiles. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So this mixed company, they go and occupy the land, and God is still judging the occupants of the land. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. So what happens here is they realize, wow, they're, the God of this land is angry with the people that live here. Maybe we should get some of the people who understand what this God wants, get these priests back in here and kind of, you know, make things go a little better. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. And poor guy, right? I mean, everybody's been kicked out of the land and you're the token, the token Israelite priest that they send back to hopefully get the lions to stop eating people. He taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every, every nation in the cities of which they lived. Okay? So, they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. Right? That, that's a pretty 
It's a pretty damning statement as as Americans. That's a pretty it's a pretty glaring but also. They feared the Lord their God, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day they do according to their former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom the Lord he named uh, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them, you shall not fear other gods. <laughs> how how in the world can you fear God? Who says, don't fear other gods? At the same time, fearing other gods. Right? This should say something to our pluralistic culture. Oh, that's fine. You can worship God. But, you know, we're going to worship what's good for me is good for me. And what's good for you is good for you. This cuts through the plural the pluralism of our present day. You shall, how many times does it say this? You shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice and the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods. <laughs> he keeps saying it. But you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Now this is interesting. Jesus is talking in John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman. Right, And this will shed light on the nature of their conversation. Because she says, what does she say? She, she brings up some kind of religious stuff. Well, you guys say this, but we like to do this. And, you know. and he, he says some of the same things. He's like, no, listen. Everybody is going to fear God. Right? God's, working, God's looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. She goes, oh, I see that you're a prophet. All right, so this kind of... this. This scripture sheds a lot of light on Jesus' exchange with the woman at the well. Go and read that this week. Um, she brings up these sort of pluralistic religious concerns. And Jesus just cuts straight to the heart of the matter. Um, so, like I said, God sends, and he says very clearly, I sent you prophets to warn you, and you did not listen. And it spells out very clearly the reason they go into exile here in First Kings 17. In no uncertain terms, here is why they did. And they deserved it. Um, one thing I want to I mention tonight, and this is probably my main point, the main thing I want to underline, is if you go real quick to Hosea, for example... I mentioned when we talked about prophecy that it's not primarily judgmental, even though a lot of judgment is issued in, in the form of prophetic term. Um, yes, judgment is often pronounced by prophets, but prophecy is there to reveal the heart of God about a situation. 
Prophecy is there to say what God thinks about this thing that's happening in this day and age. And so Hosea, uh, the book opens up like this. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That was the, the line of the Judah kings during that time. And in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, the king of Israel, Jeroboam too. Hosea had come. This is before Hosea the king had ascended to the throne in Israel. And the word that God delivers to the Israelites, does it sound like, it does not sound anything like what's in uh, 2 Kings 17, where it's just this list of sins that they've committed. Hosea is one of the most profoundly emotional books uh, in all of the Old Testament. It it is a profound book. And the, the premise is this. Go marry a woman who's unfaithful and be faithful to her. Right? Remember how we, one of the things we said about prophets is, yes, you listen to what the prophet says, but also God will tell a prophet to do something that's prophetic. And that's one of the things he told Hosea to do. Go and you marry, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So the whole book of Hosea is full of God's broken heart for this despicable nation of Israel, even at this point, right? There are no good kings. And this is close to the very end. This is like number 16 of 18 bad kings in a row. And God says, my heart is breaking for my wife who is being unfaithful. Now we have to take, we have to take the story in with this prophetic word, Okay. It's, it's tied to the story in Scripture. In the days of Jeroboam, God said this. And we have to take what uh, the chapter 17 spells out. We have to take that in, in stride with what the prophet spells out here. The, the point is this. 2 Kings chapter 17 tells you why they went into exile. And the book of Hosea the book of Amos, tells you how God felt about that. Does that make sense? And if you read through Hosea, yes, there are prophecies of Israel. Uh, Israel is unfaithful. Israel is like a, a, a faithless prostitute. But there's also these interesting passages that... Uh, Look ahead to the future. Chapter 6 in Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up. This is a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus. So at the moment that the downward decline is past the point of no return, God sends a prophet with the message of the resurrection of the Messiah straight into the heart of the land. And so, yes, God was sending them into exile, but God was also preaching the gospel 
And he never stopped preaching the gospel through the mouths of the prophets. At every point along the way, he's saying, return, return, return. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn. So, in prophesying, he has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. It's not saying, you know what? If you stop now, you won't go into exile. What's it saying? You're going into exile. You're going to die. God raises the dead. That's the message. That's the prophetic message. Not, hey, if you just get a little better, maybe you can avoid destruction. No, the message is, you are doomed and you're headed out of here. And it breaks my heart. And guess what? I'm going to raise you from the grave after I put you in the grave. (laughs) I have hewn them by the prophets and slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. I've been dealing with this kind of thing a long time, people. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Um, if you read through Hosea, it's, it's an amazing book to read. And imagine yourself in the period of history that it's being spoken to. Um, that's one of the best things about reading through kings and getting the story inside of you is because when you go to some of the prophets, you go, oh, wait, God was saying this then? Whoa. And it takes on a whole new meaning. Um, in Hosea 11, and Jesus quotes this, or, or one of the Gospels quotes this, when Israel was a child, so he has the, the metaphor of, of marriage and the faithless wife, But then he also says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, they called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. God is, listen to this. God is saying, you know, I remember when he learned how to walk. I mean, just imagine. Some of these kids, I mean, Abel's turning two. You remember, you taught, I remember when Leo learned how to walk. And the prophet wants us to, to tap into that emotion to let us understand how God feels about what's about to happen to Israel. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to one to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Right, God's, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God doesn't want to do what he's about to do. I think a lot of times we get this in our head that God couldn't wait to send them into exile. No. God did not want to do what he was about to do. 
since I've known them since they were in diapers. I don't want to do this thing. But he says, um, they will die. But there's so many prophecies of, but then after that, they will, they will return. They will come back. They will be raised from the grave. Um, so, the northern kingdom never gets it right. All right, the northern kingdom, the northern kings, their criteria the whole time was even, the criteria for measuring what a good king was, was different than return, return to your father. Do not go Uncle Ben, get you, yeah. I got you. Run away. <laughs> That's funny. What were we saying? The Northern Kingdom. They started off all wrong, right? Jeroboam wasn't even in the, the lineage of David. And the only thing that the Northern Kings had to do were not participating in the sins of Jeroboam. None of them get that right. They all, none of them turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. Right? That's how all the northern kings are measured. Yet they did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. Or maybe they added to the sins of Jeroboam, but none of them turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. The southern kings are measured by whether they walk in the ways of their father, David. All right. But even so, even the northern kingdom that was that was gone astray from the beginning. God has deep love for them and compassion for them and does not want them to go into exile. He wants to give them the land. But they refuse. Okay? And so what do, we, what do we hear in this? I, th- I think we have to hear the gospel in this. Right? And we'll talk about the southern kingdom later, and there's some, there's some similar things here when the, uh, the nobility of Assyria starts taunting Hezekiah and taunting the people under Hezekiah's rule. Oh, don't listen to Hezekiah. He's going he's gonna to tell you that God can save you, but he can't save you. Um, Israel deserved death. They've deserved death for a long time. And uh, it's not a question of can they get their act together. That's not what we take away from the story. Oh, well, God gave them a chance to get their act together, and they never did. What we need to take away from this story is that those people that never get their act together, they deserve death. And God wants to even raise them from the grave. He raised them from the dead. They can't, they can't fix it. They were never going to fix it. But God has a way to fix it. And it's going to be a while before they understand that. There is a very, very interesting verse. In 1 Peter. Uh, 
start in verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them. Now, who did Hosea prophesy to? And Amos? Who did he prophesy to? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Hosea is prophesying to you and me. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What were the prophets getting at? They were preaching the gospel. And they were preaching the gospel to those who couldn't really understand the gospel yet. And so the prophets were prophesying to Israel, but they're also prophesying to us in saying, hey, <laughs> that's us. We deserve exile. We deserve to be booted out of God's house. But we can die, and through the blood of Jesus and through the resurrection of Jesus, we can come out on the other side, and we can live in the house. This is the good news, that there is a death and a resurrection that now enables God to shower his grace on his people. It was revealed to them, these prophets, they weren't serving themselves, but you. Yes, they were prophesying to their time. But was Israel going to be able to hear the prophecy of, of Hosea and come back to God and everything would be the way that it should? No. Jesus had not yet come. And so one of the things we'll talk about next week is that it's really interesting. Hezekiah, Josiah, even Uzziah. These are some of the best kings that Judah ever saw. And they did some of the best things that any king ever did. But it was all too late. It was all after destruction had been finalized. After God had said, okay, Judah, that's it. You're out of here. And then Josiah comes. What's, what do we hear in that? We'll talk about that next week. Um, there's nothing from within Israel that can save Israel. So God's cutting off every possible way that Israel can say, hey, I'm going to save myself. He's cutting off all their enemies and he's bringing them to complete helplessness so that he can then come and, and save them by his grace. Amen? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. We have been, when the gospel is proclaimed, the essence of what the prophets were prophesying 
comes to light. Death and resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what all the scripture points to. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. The death and the resurrection, the enthronement of Jesus. All right, so next week we'll talk about the southern kingdom and how these late attempts at reform are are sadly, I mean, they're commendable, but sadly they're not enough. And Judah too has to go into exile. All right, so exile is a major theme of the Old Testament. Exile is never a place that the people of God want to find themselves. It's not in the plan. Exile is not in the plan. Um, Jesus comes and he tastes exile. He goes outside the city and he suffers outside the gate. Right? Um, Exile is a picture of death. It's a picture of banishment from the garden. And Jesus came to taste exile for us so that we could be brought back into the promised land. All right. um, Enough rambling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for Uh, this story. Lord, thank you for where we are in this story. And I pray that as we continue to uh, read of uh, your broken heart for your people and and the exile that's to come, uh, Lord, I pray that that we would be hearing uh, the first parts of the gospel in all this, that we have sinned, that we deserve death. Uh, But Lord, I pray that the full gospel would be, uh, would be at work among us, even as we study the exiles and the captivities, Lord, uh, that we would, as First Peter says, that we would rejoice that the gospel has been preached to us and that we would understand now what the prophets were getting at. They're not serving themselves, but they're serving us. They're telling us what God was up to in paving the way for Christ to come into the world and take all this death, all this failure, all this faithlessness, And once for all, put it all to death so that he could forgive his people and create a covenant, a new covenant in his blood based on the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Lord, help us to be filled with the truth, the deep truth of the gospel in these days. And uh, to see how you you have been, uh, what you've been up to all through history, all through the history of your people. We thank you for that. Uh, Lord, go with us. Uh, we, we want to lift up the outreach on campus this week and the next couple weeks, Lord, that you would guide our steps, uh, that we would be full of your truth, full of your gospel, uh, to be able to share it, uh, be, be ready to share uh, with those that uh, the team comes into contact with. Uh, Lord, be with us this week. Help us to love our families. Help us to love our friends, God, and pour our lives out uh, for the people that you've called us to. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.